Many say today that um, we are suffering from a leadership vacuum in America, and that's what's driving our politics. Well, it should. The two weeks before his death, Walt Disney made this quote, the greatest need of our country today is leadership. Some things, they say, never change. It reminds me of the nation of Israel, and actually if you go back and look at her history, you'll find that almost 3,000 years ago, this was what was said at the time in the nation of Israel. Everyone did what was right in his or her own eyes from Judges 21, 25, or even later, scoop forward 500 years, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light, light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter from the book of Isaiah. Sound familiar? <laughs> Just, this could be us. And where does leadership start? Well, it starts, ladies, with you and, and me. And that's why I think it's so great that we're moving into the book of Timothy. In 1 Timothy, um, Paul is writing, it's, it's actually written, it's called Timothy, but it's not written by Timothy, it's written to Timothy. My earring, but okay, we got the earring thing going again, hold on. So, um, Paul is writing to Timothy, and if ever there was a great leadership manual, this is it. It's found right here in this book, where Paul is um, spelling out laws of leadership for his young uh, understudy, Timothy. Before we jump in to the book itself, I want to just review a couple of details about the setting so that we understand that before we look right here to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Um, Paul wrote this book in a series called the Pastoral Letters. Now, the Pastoral Letters contained three, they were, they were three letters written to two different men, to Timothy and to Titus. Um, Timothy had been raised, you got to study this in your, um, as you did your research and as you worked your lesson this week, you found that he'd been raised by a believing, God-fearing mother and grandmother. But what's interesting is that his father is, or was, a non-believing, at least at the time of this writing, um, Greek. And you know that from when you looked in, in the book of Acts, it specifies his believing mother and grandmother, and it says, but his father was a Greek. But is a contrast, meaning these are believers, but this one is not. And so, is it still? Okay. I'm sorry, technical. It's just been a technical. Oh, now you can hear me. Can you hear me now? It's like it doesn't fit my ear today. It's like I just technically can't get myself together. I'm kind of hanging out. So anyway, um, okay, so, so let's just park on that point alone for a moment today. Maybe you are sitting here and you are a woman who is married to a non-believing man and you're wondering if all the things you are doing spiritually to raise your child matter at all. Well, Timothy can, Timothy can tell you they do. He's evidence that it matters what you do with your children, whether your spouse is a believer or not. And that takes us to 1 Peter. Flag me if it's going because it feels like it's falling off of my ear. Um, where we are told to submit to our husbands, whether they obey the word or not, so that they might be won by the behavior, not the words coming out of our mouth, a really hard one for me, that they might be won by our behavior. What an impact a woman can have. All right, well, what if you're sitting here, and it's not that you're married to a non-believer, but 
but you're a believer now and you look and you say, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. No one ever taught me that I had to accept Jesus on faith alone. I never even heard this before until now. And you're thinking, what about me? I didn't, I didn't have all of that. Well, Paul is a great example for you. And what Paul, what we know is Paul adopted Timothy as his spiritual son. He discipled him. There is someone out there who wants to disciple you. And so you might, might not have had that background or that um, upbringing, but someone does, it's coming off of my ear totally, someone does want to disciple you. There is someone who wants to be Paul in your life. And so this is a great example for us to follow. So Paul wrote these books in the later years of his life. This was... Uh, supposedly somewhere between his two imprisonments, somewhere between AD 62 and 67. And so he's in his last years of ministry. He realizes where he's headed and he dies a martyr's death. And so what do we, what do we see from that? This is a man who knew well the cost of faith. If you read about Paul, you'll find he was shipwrecked. Uh, I mean, they tried to kill him. They ran him out of town. They beat him until he nearly died multiple times. On and on and on, he gives a list somewhere of what he went through for faith. And so he knew well what he was doing. He also knew well this church, this group of believers in Ephesus. He had founded the church in Ephesus and he loved it deeply. And what he realizes is, I'm never going to go back there. I'm never going to be there again. So I want to leave it with a trusted man. And who does he choose but young Timothy? And Timothy is young at this point in his life. And so what Paul wants to do is leave him Everything you need to know, or, you know, what's that book that that guy wrote? Everything great I ever learned, I learned in kindergarten or something. Well, Paul is wanting to give him everything he knows about leadership. Young Timothy, I'm going to leave this church to you. I'm charging you with it. And so I'm going to give you all the rules of the road so that you can lead it well. That's what we've got. So as I read this book, I kept seeing the leadership theme come up. And so what I did was sit down at my computer and I Googled the top 10 leadership books in America today. And boy, was I ever surprised because one of them has been on my shelf since the 1980s. The seven high, uh, the, the habits, seven habits of highly effective people. Well, I just did a little plagiarizing and said, ah, if it's good enough for Stephen Covey still in America today, then we're gonna use it. And today what we're gonna look at are the seven habits of highly effective Christian leaders because it's different, it's different for us. And we're not just effective people, we are effective Christian leaders. So that's what we're gonna look at today. So if you haven't opened your Bibles, turn with me, if you will, to 1 Timothy. And the first habit we're gonna see right off the bat as we open here in the salutation is that leaders serve a chief commander. Paul tells us right off the bat that he is under the command of God. Antoinette had touched on this very same thing when she gave us her little prescription um, last week. It was one of the things she mentioned that we're under a, uh, the authority of God himself. The command word here is a military term. So think of it in, in that light. It's a military term meaning someone comes under the authority. You take orders from someone else. Uh, Paul is in submission to God, just like you and I are, every one of us. If we call ourselves a believer and have put our faith and trust in Christ, then we come under the authority of God. Paul typically starts all of his letters. If you read Paul's writings, you will find that everyone in the, this little first part called the salutation, he always says grace and peace to you. But he doesn't do that here. 
Only in Timothy will you find the distinction. Here, what does he say? He says, grace, mercy, and peace be to you. Now, why does he do that? He, he actually loves this mercy word so, so much that he's going to use it two more times in this chapter, chapter one, because you see, he realizes some things, um, and he's going to talk about them, and we're going to talk about them today. Grace, we know has that beautiful little acrostic, if you spell out G-R-A-C-E. It is God's riches at Christ's expense. That's what grace is. That's what comes to you. So grace points us upward. It's where it comes from. Not, not anything we do, it comes from God alone. Mercy, however, points inward. Mercy is the thing that causes you to look at your own bad self, so to speak. It's you analyzing within do I have a clean heart? And what we know from Scripture is, do any of us in this room? No, absolutely, or didn't at, a, at the point of salvation, did not have a clean heart, cannot, cannot be clean. And so mercy causes you to look within and say, I can't do it on my own. I need a Savior. And the result, what do you get for that when you've got grace and mercy is peace, everlasting. That's what you get. And so that's why he starts the book this way. He reminds us again, that we're under authority, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist in, on the earth have been instituted by God from Romans. And that takes us to the second point, that leaders refrain from getting sidetracked, starting in verse 3. It's evident that the folks in Ephesus had missed the mark. They just missed it. Um, he uses, at least in my translation, he uses words like, I'm going to read them to you. Um, he says, remain at Ephesus that you can charge certain persons not to teach any different uh, doctrine, nor to occupy themselves with myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than divine training. Whether the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith, certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away. Ah, so you see something right there with the, that terminology. They have swerved. They have wandered away. So we got a road laid out in front of us. And it's very clear he had laid out the road for the Ephesians. But he's saying they've swerved. They've gone off. They're wandering around somewhere else out in Timbuktu. They're not where they're supposed to be. And I know you know exactly what this sounds like that folks do in our world today with this very same thing. These are the kind of folks who just get hung up on the littlest, most minute details and they miss the forest for the trees. You know what I'm talking about. People who hang up on one little word and they want to tell you what it does mean or what it doesn't mean and what they miss is the whole intent of the passage because they're all hung up on arguing with you over this word right here. That's the people he's talking about, hung up on myths, genealogies. They're the ones that would say, well, you know, um, I come from the tribe of, because again, he was writing, many of these are Jewish believers and they were all hung up on their heritage and who they came from and I'm the son of and the tribe of and blah, 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 blah. And he's saying, you're missing it. That's not what matters anymore. It doesn't matter who you are or where you came from or even if you're Greek. And so he goes on and he tells us, Four specific things these people were doing that lays out what, how we know if you're off course. The first is they're teaching a different doctrine. They may not have been dramatically off, but again, it's the little devil that's in the details. They were occupying themselves, again, with myths and genealogies. The whatever it was, I belong to the tribe or telling fables, or they did lots of oral traditions in the Jewish faith. So they were talking a lot about these traditions, but they weren't 
truth. And that's what he's wanting to zero back in on the road we're on. And the result of that is it promoted speculation. Now, how do you define speculation? Today, people speculate in the markets. What does that mean? It means they're taking a risk. It means it may or it may not work out for you. It's speculating, promoting speculation. Well, that's not what truth does. Truth is certain. It is sure. It is an anchor. You can bank on it. You can count on it. It is not speculation. And that's what he's saying. And then they're desiring to be teachers without understanding. It's all about the show, you know. That's what these think folks were thinking. Now, to understand this one, I think all you got to do is have a teenager. I've used this example before, but at that, at the, the, the teenage age, whatever that is, um, there's nothing you can tell your kids that they really don't already know. I love the story about a small town businessman who put a little sign out in his window and the sign said, for sale, one set of encyclopedias never used. Teenage son already knows it all. I love that, and that is so much like the Ephesians right here. That's what he's saying, that these folks who were, who were longing to be teachers were wanting to teach. They wanted to know it all, but they didn't really even understand what it was they were saying. And that takes us to the third thing, that leaders set goals. And in 5, Paul, verse 5, makes it very clear the aim, or you could put in there the goal of, of what we're about here, and it's spelled out for you right there. It's been said that the man who aims at nothing will usually hit it. Paul was anything but this kind of man. He was the goal setter supreme. Listen to this. Do you not know that in a race all runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Well, and then he talks personally. I don't run aimlessly, but I, I, Paul, pummel my body and subdue it, lest after preaching I myself might be declared unfit and ordered or, or disqualified in order to stand aside from 1 Corinthians. Or later, he goes on, I press on toward the goal. What goal? Of the prize of the upward calling of God in Jesus Christ from Philippians. It's very clear, he makes it very clear that the Christian goal should be threefold. Number one, it's love, because love never fails. It has the power to overcome the greatest of obstacles. When you radically love people, you can change their hearts. Love one another, even as I have loved you, Jesus said, that you also should love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is what we're trying to do at CAR. Um, our partner that we do some service projects with. We're trying to show these teachers that we love them by the things that we do. No strings attached. Last Friday, a group of us was there working in the teacher workroom, working in several of the classrooms. And you can just tell they're looking at us trying to figure it out. Like, why are you here? What are you doing? I'm just not quite sure. And if you missed that opportunity, another group is going down this Friday. They're going to serve lunch and they're going to do some more projects. And so email alex at what? Is it Alex Wagner? Is Alex Alex at Alex Wagner at watermark.org and she can hook you up. But just show up. Go to car on Bayside. Look it up and just show up down there. And you too can help love in a way that radically changes people. And then he says the second aim, the second goal of the Christian life is to have a pure heart and a good conscience. It's in my mind, often I say, okay, well, what is that? Well, sometimes I like to define things by first saying what it's not. And you know what? I can tell you what a guilty conscience is. That I know. Don't know if you've ever done something wrong and felt guilty about it, but I have. Um, and and it, it leaves you with a, a shame, uh, a, a retreating, uh, I, don't wanna, I don't want anybody to know about this. That's the way it leaves you feeling. 
And you know what? Thank God when you do feel that because that is the Holy Spirit within you that is pricking your conscience, wherever it is, somewhere between your head and your heart, wherever your conscience is seated, telling you, you need to make this right. That's what a pure conscience is. I, I love... Um, this verse from Psalm, he who, and we sang about it today, it was beautiful, and Whitney in her song, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift his soul up to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from the God of his salvation. So how do you get this? Will you practice regular confession with God? Because even if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, I can tell you from personal experience on a daily basis, I am tripping up over my own big feet and I am having to look at my conscience and, and go to Psalm 139. We're, we're, uh, Again, David was saying, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me. Test my thoughts. It's not just even what I did. It might be what I'm thinking in my head. And see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Because we know then all you do, once you confess your sins, he's faithful and just and he forgives you and you're done. It's over, done with. You might have to go say something to someone. You might have to go do something to make it right. But done, clean, clean heart. And that leads you to sincere faith. This isn't just the Sunday morning variety. This is the everyday radically changing and impacting how you live every day kind of faith. And that's what he's talking about. That's the goal of the Christian life. And that takes us really to, to ourselves and to asking, do you today have spiritual goals? I think many of us here um, have goals. Of course, if it were January, we would know because what do we always do every January? I'm going to make not a resolution, but it's kind of, again, a goal setting time. It's fresh, beginning of the year. I might have business goals. I might have physical goals for my body. I might have financial goals of what I want to do this year, how much I want to save, or I'm saving for this or that. But do you have spiritual goals? I want to have this type of a reading plan through God's Word this year. I want to study this book of the Bible. I want to get in that Bible study. I want to memorize that verse. Well, if you don't have them, today's the day. Set them. Go home. Write them down and then go back periodically and look at them because that's how you'll know if you're hitting the mark or not is go back. Aim for something spiritual so that you can, in fact, hit it. And that takes us to the fourth habit that leaders have. Leaders understand the law, and they understand that it's for sinners, not saints. Paul was a student of the law, uh, of the Jewish law, that is. Think kind of of the lawyer, one that just studies the law itself. He'd been tutor tutored by Gamaliel, who was the best rabbi of the time. He took great pain to keep the law, he thought, so much so that he vigorously opposed the Christian faith, and he told you all about that, and yet what happened? It all changed on the road to Damascus. For no human being will be justified in his sight by works of the law, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin from Romans 3.20. This is why his list of sins that he goes through and lists all these terrible things, you're reading like, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. You're reading it all. And what it ends in is a great all-encompassing phrase, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Or he could just say, and whatever else breaks truth. Uh-oh, the whatever else thing got me. Because if I was thinking, nah, nah, didn't do that, didn't do that, that nah, yeah, doesn't apply to me. All of a sudden, whatever else, I'm like, uh-oh. Okay, deer in the headlights, you got me. Whatever else in thought, word, or deed that breaks God's law. And the truth is, all of us are guilty. We all stand guilty. And so you might be sitting here thinking you're pretty good, but pretty good is not good enough as far as God sees. And what... What a leader understands, a Christian leader understands, is it's far better to see your sin and know who you really are 
a person desperately in need of grace. R.C. Sproul said it this way, really we're all closer to Hitler than we are to Jesus Christ. And that takes us to leaders recognizing the privilege of their position. And what is their position? Justified. And again, the acrostic for justified is just as if I'd never sinned. That's who we are though. Your sins are like scarlet. They'll be white as snow. Though they're red as crimson, they'll be like wool. And when you know this fact, ladies, you never get over it. And another interesting thing about that is that when you're broken before God, you can be honest about your past. And that's what Paul was, honest. He gave the whole laundry list of all the things that he'd done, he's done. And you know what? I've struggled. In my, in this, this has been a struggle for me in my life, thinking if I told you about my struggle with purity at a point in my life, then you might not, what would you think about me and who I was? And what I found, though, is when I do tell that story, it causes people to approach me. I become approachable in a different way. Why? Because people know I'm a sinner desperately in need of God's grace. So how about you? Are you falling on your knees in front of God today, cut to the core by your sin, and amazed, standing amazed that the Savior of the universe would die for you? I love that William Barclay said, the memory of our sin is the sure, surest way to keep our gratitude aflame. And that takes us to the sixth habit, and that's leaders practice an attitude of gratitude. We're drawn to thankful people like a magnet. They make us feel good, and conversely, we're repelled by proud people. They're usually the ones that, that think they're getting less than they deserved, and they're certainly telling us all about it. But the humble person knows, I don't deserve a thing, or it, or this, or whatever it is. And so they're grateful for it all. Grateful people realize they can't do anything without God. He who abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing, nothing, ladies. And this is tough because we all grew up in the independent culture that says, I can do it all on my own. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, just do it. Well, really, the Christian should wear a big old t-shirt that says, I didn't do it. I can't do it. That's who we are before God. Um, and I love that Paul goes on and tells us, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. He's speaking of Jesus, of course. I will then all the more gladly boast of my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest in me. How's your gratefulness question today? I love that our kids today in the teaching program, they're learning the story of the 10 lepers that came to Jesus. He healed all 10. Guess how many came back to thank him? One. It's a great thing to talk with your kids about today when you go home. Are you the one who's coming back and thanking Jesus for what he's done in your life? It will certainly change your perspective when you begin to thank God for where you are, how, no matter how tough, it begins to alter the way you see life. And that takes us to the last, and that's leaders finish the fight. Repeatedly in our study of James, up to this point, we've talked about the fact that we're all involved in a war. It's a battle. Uh, it's a spiritual one. And so he, he lists out a couple things that we need to know about this battle right here as he closes this book. He says, we're engaged in it till the day we die. And nobody knew that better than Paul. He was still fighting the fight, the good fight, he tells Timothy. So the moral of the story is don't be surprised when things around you are tough. And then know that you'll be spared nothing as Satan tries to get you on the rocks. He talks about these believers being shipwrecked in their faith. Well, we know that we have an enemy that prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So don't be surprised when the attacks come against you because you're not going to be spared anything, and particularly if you are making a difference in, in, in your life and what you do. This can be such a difficult place for a leader because even they sometimes want to give up and quit. 
We're going to show you a quick clip, I think. We're going to try here to show you a quick clip um, that illustrates this point more beautifully than my words ever could as we end. And this will be how we finish today. Um, this is a, a team. Um, it's sports. It's a sports analogy who was going up against an unbeatable opponent. And you know what? Their captain actually didn't realize um, that he was already defeated because he said, they're unbeatable. We can't beat them. Watch what his coach does with them now. So have you grown weary today? Feel like giving up today? Be encouraged as you leave here today to finish the fight by turning your eyes to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I've fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, with the, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Father, we just come to you, and I just thank you for that. those last words the coach spoke to that, that young man. God has gifted you with a leadership ability. Don't waste it. Just like every woman sitting in this room is leading someone, you've been gifted. Help us all not to waste it today. In your name, amen.